Acts chapter 4, going through uh, the book of Acts, verse by verse, and taking a uh, dispensational approach to it. So Acts chapter 4, and we're actually going to pick up with a couple of references on verse 26. We just couldn't get it all in there the last time, Um, but we've been talking a great deal about how Peter has been dealing with the Jews. This is a Jewish situation. These are Jewish sermons and a Jewish Messiah that they had killed, and uh, they were responsible before God for what they had done, even though they unwittingly fulfilled the will of God. God had prepared this and planned for this from before the foundation of the world, that he would give his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So they fulfilled God's will, but they were still responsible, and that is a great mystery. It's something we'll never completely understand. Uh, Jonah, when Jonah was thrown out of the boat, remember? They said, what is the problem here? Why, why is there a storm, and why are the gods angry at us? A bunch of pagans on that boat. And uh, Jonah said, it's not the gods. It's, it's my God. It's Jehovah. He's angry with me because I'm on the run, and I'm disobeying him, and I didn't go preach where he wanted me to preach. And so, uh, so they took him and threw him out of the boat. They threw him out of the boat. And then the storm calmed, and they were safe, and they were fine. But later on, Jonah said, Lord, you threw me out of the boat. Lord, you threw me out of the boat. You see, we'll never quite understand how God works together with us to fulfill his will, but he does. And he did that in the timing, everything that was, it was just right for Jesus to lay down his life, including the method of execution, the crucifixion. So, but I wanted you to see here, that the gospel was meant for the Jew first, for the Jew first. In verse 26 of chapter 3, Peter said that, unto you, who's that? Unto you first, God, having raised up his son. Anytime you find you, the letter Y, and a uh, second person pronoun, it's, it's plural, whether it's you or ye, he's saying you addressing the nation, Unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus. That word first, that's an important word. It really is. And um, there's a lot of truth connected to that. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. uh, We've read through our Bibles. I think most of us here, or we've probably at least read through the New Testament and there's a lot of things you don't pick up the first time you read through it. That's why you've got to keep reading through it. <clears throat> and I remember I'd read through the Bible several times. And uh, then I went to Bible college. And I was taught that when Jesus Christ came, he did not come for the Gentiles. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And had they accepted him, it would have been a different story. I learned that, and I never picked that up on my, in, on my own, in my own study, and I didn't pick that up at church, and it wasn't my pastor's fault. I hadn't been around that long in church. I hadn't picked that up, but it's there. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, verse 5 of Matthew 10, commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, And into any city 
of the Samaritans enter ye not. So the Gentiles are non-Jewish people. The Samaritans, they were half-breeds. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. Now, is Jesus God in the flesh? Okay, so it's God's will, directive will, for them not to go to the Gentiles with the gospel of the kingdom. And not to go even to the Samaritans, right? It was a Syrophoenician woman that the Lord first uh, helped out that was a Gentile. And when he did that, he wasn't even going to do it at first. But she kept on pleading with him, and he had mercy on her and helped her out. There's a reason for that. Uh, Chapter 15 and verse 24 Chapter 15 and verse 24. And there in chapter 15, Matthew and verse 24. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See that woman there in verse 22? Woman of Canaan. She came out. And cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. He didn't even acknowledge her. It's not because he doesn't love all people or that God doesn't love the world. But it's a dispensational thing. There's more going on in the Gospels than we're aware of. And his disciples came and besought her, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. They're saying, Lord, she is crying out, making a lot of noise, stirring up a scene, making herself a spectacle, send her away. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said that to her, apparently. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. He called the Gentiles dogs. And we are dogs. Amen. We are (laughs) flea-bitten rascals. We are. Um, We're dogs. We're not the children. But listen, when he was doing that, he's starting to deal with her. Verse 27, she said, truth, Lord, she humbled herself. She said, that's true, Lord, I know I am. I know I'm a, I'm a sinner, and I know I'm not a part of the chosen nation. I know I don't live a righteous life. I know I don't go to the temple and worship, and I know my sins aren't taken care of and atoned for, and I know I don't live for God. She said, truth, Lord, Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And you know what that was? That was just faith and humbling herself and saying, Lord, I just want to be like a dog. And when the children are eating at the table, I'll take some of the scraps. That's a humble woman. And that's, you can't get saved unless you humble yourself like that. You know, yesterday uh, it wasn't a dog, it was a cat. And it looked like our cat, Echo, 
we've got this little cat, and we've had her for a while, and I don't think she's going to get any bigger. I think she was the runt of the litter, but, uh, but Echo's a fighter. She's, she's sticking with it. She's, she's been around for a while. We had a couple other cats, and they're gone. They, there's coyotes out there, and if they don't learn how to climb the roof, uh, they're in trouble. And there's also cars out there, and then there's a, a, there's a groundhog, and there's a possum that I think they've claimed my, my little building, my little shed where my lawnmower is, so they can't sleep under there, so they sleep underneath the, the porch, the deck in the back. But uh, we saw a cat yesterday at this youth rally, and we're all sitting underneath the tent and eating our pizza, and I'm watching this cat as the kids are eating. They're dropping food and dropping potato chips all over the place. This cat's going around and getting a little bite here and there. You know, the cats aren't equal to us. The, the created uh, beings, all the creatures all over this earth, they're not, they're not equal to humanity. Mankind was the pinnacle of God's creation. They're lesser. But they, they know where to find a meal, right? Well, a hungry sinner knows where to get fed when it comes to getting the gospel and getting the bread of life. And she said, I just want some of the crumbs. And when Jesus answered and said unto her, you know what he was thinking? I wish my own people would humble themselves like that. I wish my own people, the children of the kingdom, they're supposed to be, the Jewish people, I wish they would humble themselves to come to me and repent and receive me as their Messiah. So he says, O woman, he was impressed with her faith. O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee. You see that? That was outside of the dispensation. God was not dealing with Gentiles or Samaritans, but he did something completely outside of his present plan and program. You know what that does? That's an exception. And you know what they say about exceptions, right? They just prove the rule. They prove the rule. Um, look at one more. Look at uh, Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. Luke uh, 24. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that the Bible is a dispensational book. And God deals with people differently at different times. And in different places. He deal, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Uh, but he deals with people differently at different times. Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. Still the same loving, merciful kind, patient God that's slow to anger, slow to wrath. Same God, but dealing with people in different ways at different times because he's got a plan that we don't know about. We don't understand all of it. Luke 24, verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Now something's changed. They rejected their Messiah. And because they rejected their Messiah, God is saying now, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. The, the, uh, the wild olive branches are going to be grafted into the natural olive tree. And we're the wild ones. And, uh, and then when the Gentiles start to reject God, guess what? He's going to reject them and turn back to the Jews during the tribulation period. But he says, now, 
do it among all nations, but where are you supposed to start? Jerusalem. That's where you're supposed to start. And you're witnesses of these things. Now, they, they understand very little of what he's telling them to do. They don't understand yet, but they're getting it. You see, for the disciples, they were moving along and progressing in their knowledge of God's word and what Jesus wanted them to do, and they were slowly getting it, right? And it's the same thing for us. Don't be surprised for you if, if it takes time to get all of this. I was talking to a pastor yesterday. He used to be a youth pastor, and his name is Dan, and he's serving here in Ohio in a church, and I had met him through Camp Victory, and uh, he's been pastoring for about a year, and he came up to me, and he said, uh, he said Brother John, how you doing? And and I said, hey, and we, we're kind of catching up and everything. He's a, a real nice guy um, and uh, a, a lot of fun to, to be with. But he said, I've been a pastor for about a year. And, and he said, I know you've been down there in Racine for about three years. You got any advice for me? And I, I, said, I said, no, I don't. I really don't. Um, I told him what somebody told me when I came down here, and it was good advice. I got it from several different people. And I think it probably came ultimately from Warren Wearsby, but I'm not sure. But uh, everybody said, just go there and love them and teach them. Love them and teach them because churches need Bible teaching, and they need to be loved by the pastor. Now, I don't know how I'm doing on that. I'm, and my heart is to, to love God's people. But um, I told him, I said, I'm, I'm a teacher, and I believe that a pastor should be a teacher I mean, I want to preach and have fun in church and really, every once in a while, just stir things up. But we need, pre- we need teaching. We need to be grounded in the doctrines of the Word of God because it's just not happening. It is not happening in a lot of churches. So I, you, you know that I put a big emphasis on teaching. And so I told him, I said, that's the best advice I could give you, and they said, don't change anything, try not to change anything for the first year, or maybe two years, or three years, if you can go that far, don't change anything, because you do that, and you'll step on some toes, you don't understand all the dynamics of the relationships, and so on, so uh, I told him that, but I said, I don't have any advice for you, but um, but I said, I'd be willing to talk to you, and pray with you, and that kind of thing, fellowship with you, so that's what we're doing, That we're teaching, and um, you know, when you teach, we'll go back to Acts chapter 4. When you teach, some stuff is going to go over your head, but you're going to get some of it. And you just get what you get and then, and then go home and study these things. And oftentimes, you don't see it the first time or even the second time, but you'll get it eventually. So it could have been a completely different story had they received uh, their Messiah. It would have been a different situation. Okay, Chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them. So this is Peter and John. They were going up to the temple to pray. They're still following Jewish customs. They're still acting like Jews. And they healed that lame man along the way. They got themselves an audience And they preach the gospel. Now they're continuing to do that, to speak to the people. And then the leadership is getting upset with them. Anytime you try to do a work for God, you're going to find out that you have opposition, right? They had opposition from 
the who's who in the Jewish world. The priests, no doubt, you know, the, the high priests of Aaron and so on and so forth. And the, the captain of the temple, who's that? That's an official that was second only to the high priest. He was in charge of like the temple police, the captain of the temple. And he, they have guards guarding the temple and protecting it. And then uh, the Sadducees, that was a religious sect. And they were like the liberals. They did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. And they pretty much only accepted Moses' Torah. They were, you know, the first five books of the Bible. They were religious liberals. The Pharisees, they were the conservatives. They're like the independent fundamental Baptists today. The conservative realm, the patriotic realm of Christianity in America you know, those Sadducees, uh, they didn't like what they were doing because they were grieved, it says. They were upset. Verse 2, <clears throat> they were upset that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they found a doctrinal point to dispute them on and to get upset. You know what this is behind all of this? Back of all of this, it's a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. This is how, this is how you know that you're in God's will. If you're stirring up opposition, if, if a church wants to know if they're in God's will, is that church stirring up opposition with somebody? The devil will, <clears throat> if something good is happening, the devil will cause trouble, won't he? Uh, one of my heroes, he taught me a lot of Bible in school, his name's Brian Donovan. And I, I recently heard a little bit more about his testimony, and I didn't know it. I <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. <clears throat> um, if I could find a cure for that, I think I'd pay a lot of money for it. All this coughing and stuff. But uh, um, he, he, told, uh, he told his Sunday school class that he was up in New York City, I believe, and he was doing well, and he was uh, like a, a plant manager. He, he had a, a job, and, and he was working in an office in a plant and doing very well making a good salary, had, you know, health coverage, benefits, all that stuff, the whole package. And uh, they saw in him right away leadership, so they just kept on promoting him. This was after he had graduated from Bible college. He had a little Bible study going, and he was trying to start a church and uh, do what he was trained to do. Um, and then he got a call from the Bible college uh, president and said, I'd like you to come down here and um, be my associate. And he had in mind, if it works out, having somebody to turn the thing over to eventually. And at that time, that church down in Florida was going through a split. And at that time, the church down in, there in Florida hated their pastor. And the school wasn't doing well. It's fluctuated, I guess, from time to time. There was a large class when I was there. It was over 100 students altogether for the three-year rotation. But it was fluctuating, and, <laughs> and he, he saw this open door to go somewhere, but he, you see, he was already comfortable. He already had everything he needed, his family was taken care of, so on. He had met a woman who was a Catholic, and he was able to lead her to Christ, and therefore marry her, and so uh, everything was great. And uh, she turned out to be just, she's a fantastic lady, and helped out, and she was one of the first people I met there, and helped me to get registered. But um, he saw, on one hand, comfort, stability, everything is going great. 
And on the other hand, he saw a lot of opposition and trouble. And this is the kind of man that he is. He thought, if down there there's a lot of opposition and trouble, even had people calling him, telling him, take care of your family, your family's taken care of, don't go down there, that's uncertain. You're going to go broke if you go down there. Things are going to fall apart. And and when somebody called him and told him that, it, it just convinced him that it's God's will. Because God's will is always where the opposition is, where the trouble is. You don't believe it? Paul, he said, there's a great door and effectual opened unto me. Meaning, there's somewhere for me to go and to preach the gospel, to uh, lead people to Christ and to form them together into churches. And he says, there's a great door open and effectual, and there are many adversaries, is what Paul said. So Paul said, that's where I need to go. Because anywhere God is working, the devil is going to work against it. And you ought to be comfortable with that and be okay with that. Be okay with that in a church. We don't want a church where everything is just going all hunky-dory, going wonderful. Because that just says that there's probably something that's not right. And, if, and, they, and if, it do, if we get to those seasons, those sweet seasons like we just had before some trouble started, those sweet seasons where everything is just going great, then you just get ready. Expect it. The devil's going to stir up contention. It'll happen because of pride and contention. Listen, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You know how you can protect yourself from the devil and from his tactics and being a part of dissension in the church and division and love God's law. If you love God's law, if you really do, the Bible says, you'll have great peace and nothing shall offend you. A lot of the trouble starts because somebody got offended. Well, what did you get offended about? What does the Bible say about it? And aren't we really dogs anyways? You know, you humbled yourself to get saved. Can't you humble yourself now and just go to that brother and say, you know what, uh, that upset me, but I want to get things right, rather than allowing yourself to stir up trouble and contention, get angry at the preacher. You know, I noticed something all of a sudden, something changed. And I said, well, somebody's not happy because we're doing God's work. That means let's keep on doing God's work. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. So we, they're all stirred up, and they laid hands on them, and they put them in hold unto the next day. That's not like the city jail. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're detaining them. They're holding them. It's some kind of a house arrest. So to say that they put them in jail is not correct. Some translations do that, but that would be misleading. They're just being, like it says here, they're in hold. They're being detained. For it was now eventide, and it would be illegal because they're going to bring them up before the Sanhedrin, the the great uh, court of their day. And it's illegal to hold a trial at night. When Jesus Christ was uh, condemned, it was at night. It was an illegal trial. And so now they're not doing it. They're... They're saying it's, it's now eventide. Let's wait until the morning. Howbeit many of them which heard the word <laughs> believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So praise the Lord. You see, if people are getting saved, you know God is working. And so it's either that 5,000 people at that time got saved, and, and back in uh, these times, 
Back in the uh, culture, they only counted men. So these are just men that got saved, but that doesn't include the women and the children that got saved too, and you know that happened. Now, it's either that 5,000 on that occasion got saved or else that's now the total number of the saved men in the church in Jerusalem. I don't know which. I don't know which. But if it's, if it's 5,000 on that particular occasion, that would mean the previous 3,000, the 120, and now the 5,000. So 8,120, if that's the case, plus women and children. <clears throat> it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and the elders and the scribes and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. We, we have no idea who John and Alexander are, but we know some of the others. And as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. This was what we call the assembly of the uh, Sanhedrin. I'm going to write something up here on the board. <clears throat> so the Sanhedrin was supposed to be, it's like the, high, it's like the Supreme Court. Yeah, and set, it's supposed to be 72 of them, the Sanhedrin. Yeah, they, they, don't, they don't rob you at the ATM machine, they rob you with a pen and with a, with a vote. <laughs> yeah, um, so the Sanhedrin was made up of the high priests. So when a person served as a high priest, They, they kept that role of leadership. Somebody else would come in, like it says there um, in verse 6, and Annas, the high priest, he wasn't actually the acting high priest. He was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But Annas is mentioned first because he's older in the family. But he's still ruling. All of the high priests keep their power uh, and their, their, at least their influence. And they're, they're still looked at in that position, even though there's only one acting, which was Caiaphas. And they say that the Roman governors would remove these guys from their office at will anytime that they wanted to because they were trying to keep peace with these Jews, which apparently was a difficult thing to do. So in the Sanhedrin, you had one group of people that were high priests. Then you had then you had scribes. And the scribes were the people that uh, originally they just copied the word of God. And uh, they were very meticulous, especially the Masoretic scribes. In copying the Word of God, they would count the numbers of letters on one page of their scripture, and they would count from the beginning and count from the ending. If there was one mistake, they would tear this thing up, burn it, get rid of it, and start all over again. They were very meticulous in how they preserved the words of God for us. That's what the scribes started out doing. Eventually, excuse me, they became teachers. You know, they're spending all their time copying this. They studied it. Eventually, they became teachers and authorities. And they were authorities not only in religious life, but in civil life because the two were connected, right? So if there was a question about the civil law, <clears throat> the scribes were brought in on this. What does the Bible say about it? What does the scripture say? And then you also had, <clears throat> you also had the uh, elders. The elders of the people, they weren't necessarily the Levites, they don't think, but they were just the uh, older uh, 
members who were raised to that position of their people, and these would be some of the most powerful men in the society. They, this 72-person Sanhedrin was made up of these three different people, and what they did is they put the traditions of men above the word of God so that they made the word of God of no effect. Uh, they were liberal. Uh, they, were, they were apostate. Apostasy means that they had fallen away from the truth, turned from it. <clears throat> and worldly, yeah. And they're going to make decisions not based on spiritual principles and what, what's God's will and pray about it, see what God wants them to do. They're going to make decisions based upon worldly means or methods or, or reasons. You say, what is that? They see a threat to their power. That's what it means to be worldly in one sense. It doesn't just mean to listen to ACDC, although that's worldly and wicked. I was joking around with my wife the other day. I wear earmuffs when I mow the lawn on my zero turn, and she, uh, she came over to talk to me, you know, and, and I, so I, like, pulled up there, you know, and shut her down, pulled off one of my ear, earmuffs, and, uh, and I said, hold on, i got to turn off my ACDC. I was listening to, and it's funny because she doesn't even know who that is, which I love that about her. She doesn't. I said, "You know, you don't know who that is," and I was like, "They're just these long-haired, devil-filled, you know, wicked men in the '80s." Um, but I wasn't really listening to ACDC. But we think, well, that's worldly. Listening to ACDC or wearing jeans, you know, or back in the day wearing wire rim glasses or chewing bubble gum or wearing bell bottoms. <laughs> that's not the danger, okay? Some of those things have an attitude and a spirit that come along with them. I understand that. But worldly, we're talking about their, their concern was not God's glory and what God might be doing among them. Their concern was this is a threat to our uh, control over the people and our power and ultimately money. Because if they don't come to the temple, they don't make an offering. So if you find somebody compromising on the truth, that's a worldly thing happening. And you know, at the end of it, you say, that doesn't happen. A lot of these mega churches, I guess I feel like preaching more this morning. A lot of these mega churches that you go to are led by men like this. And they're set up like companies with a CEO. And he's the big charismatic guy up front. You know, I don't think I have to worry about this because I don't have the kind of charisma and personality to ever be tempted to do this. But there's some people that they are just, they're influencers. That's what they call them today. And they are like magnets, man. They draw people to them. They got their hair a certain way. They dress a certain way. They talk a certain way. And they're just charismatic and people just like them. And they can draw the crowds in. Uh, not just preachers, but, you know, uh, Elon Musk, he's one of them. Uh, and, and these motivational speakers, they can draw the crowds in. They're just good with people, good with a crowd. And what you have happening in a lot of these churches, we've heard some of the statistics from that research done in Arizona, the University of Arizona, and what has been done by, Barn, uh, by uh, the Pew uh, Research and by the other one I can't think of. We've heard this, that pastors in America, 47% of them do not believe the Bible, literally, when it comes to creation or gender, they waffle on those things. You watch them get onto these talk shows, and the, and the talk show host will say, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? What about all the Hindus? 
Do you realize that Christian people of all sorts is only one-third of the world? What about the other two-thirds? And watch them say, uh, uh, well, I, my job is just to preach the love of Jesus, and, and that's what I know. And, uh, and, and for us, you know, and if, you, know, you have to believe on Jesus, and, you know, and they waffle on it. But they won't say, unless a person comes to God by faith in Jesus Christ, they will be cast into a lake of fire. They won't say it. But praise God, I heard that David Jeremiah did. He was asked and put on the spot, and he told the truth, told the gospel truth. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, otherwise, I'd have to preach against him, you know. But you see, I'm not tempted to to want to keep control over people and power and persuasion and all that kind of stuff and influence in order to keep getting more and more of an income. But there's people out there who are, and you say, and there, now, it's not every big church, but a lot of those big churches, that's who they pulled. They didn't pull little fries like me, right? What is the love tonight? Yeah, the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you, what you find is you find compromise on doctrine, compromise on standards, and these larger churches. And we look at them, we think it's a great thing, and God bless them. I hope God can use them, and I hope there are some who are sticking to the truth. But we see the condition in America. You look out at these big churches that we're so impressed with, probably half of them aren't taking a stand for doctrine truth. And probably half of them, the leaders don't even believe the Bible. And if I just say, if I were to come up here and preach this morning and tell you folks, listen folks, I believe everything in the Bible. I mean, I really do, but I don't believe in the six-day creation account. I believe we've had that wrong all this time. And Jonah really wasn't swallowed by a whale. Yeah. You want to know what, you, you want to know something? If I did that, at least I'd be honest. But there's people who won't get up in the pulpit and tell the people that they don't believe the book because they don't want to lose the paycheck and the popularity and their position. They don't want to lose it. I actually had a man in a church that I visited in Ohio come up to me, this old man who has gone through Bob Jones University, come up to me and say, you don't really believe that the King James Bible is perfect, do you? Come on. It says that Jesus was swallowed, or that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Whales can't do that. You know what the next thing he'd be telling me? You don't really believe that God created everything and six literal days and that the earth is only 6,000 years old. You don't believe that. The church believed that for centuries until the last 200 years. They stopped believing that. Because of what? Because of a, a, a theory called evolution. Anyways, let's, let's keep going. What I'm saying is that there's people that's more interested in their power, their influence, and their position than they are in the truth of the word of God. And so when they had set them in the midst, they asked. Now they got them in front of the council. They're trying to intimidate them. What are these two unlearned and uneducated, ignorant preachers going to say to them? By what power or by what name have ye done this? <laughs> then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them now he's got courage now he's got boldness and he's filled with the holy ghost he said unto them ye rulers of the people and elders of israel now he's going to let them have it but notice when he starts out notice how uh he's a gentleman 
He's respectful. He doesn't say, you bunch of lying, thieving, corrupt politicians. He's respectful. He calls them by their title. So he's not brash, and he's not, uh, you know, making a stink and making the gospel stink among his people. But he says, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He's honoring their age and their position, but he's really going to let them have it. Now, he's filled with the Holy Ghost, and he begins to speak, and this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave to his disciples. So look at Luke chapter 12 with me real quick. Jesus told him that one of these days you're going to be brought before uh, some folks, and don't think about what you're going to say. Don't meditate on it or anything like that, or don't write out your sermon. But when it comes time, the Holy Ghost is going to give you the words that you need to say. So Luke chapter 12 and verse 11 says there, And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, that's where they are now in front of the Sanhedrin, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer, or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. So that's what they have here. That's what's happening right in front of us in Acts chapter 4. The Holy Ghost is teaching him what to say, and what follows is a fulfillment of that prophecy. And uh, you say, does that still happen today? I've heard people say one, one way or another, um, I, I prepare what I'm going to preach when I come in here. I, I stayed up till midnight last night preparing what I was going to preach this morning. Um, but there are times when if you'll just trust God and if you'll just go out, there are times when he just gives you the right thing to say. You don't have to worry about, do I have all the answers? Can I answer all their objections? This and that. No, just go in faith. Just be in the word of God and in prayer and be filled with the spirit, which means to be under his control and submissive to him, give yourself to the Holy Spirit and let him use you. Uh, he'll just he'll give you what you need to say. And just remember this. What he wants you to say is never going to be, unless you're talking to a religious hypocrite, like a pastor of a megachurch or something. It's never going to be like harsh or critical or a burn. You know what I'm saying? Like, ooh, he just burned him. It's not going to be like that. We're, what are we supposed to be? Kind and gentle with all men, right? Supposed to be that way? And just like Peter, he's being respectful. And if you can't win them to Christ, leave the door open so somebody else can. So um, we got to watch that. And I, I might be preaching myself there most of all. But I've kind of learned that. I've learned that. And um, there's some people I know have hot tempers. So when I'm talking to them, I just want to try to get a word in for God and see if they'll let me keep going. If they won't, I'm not going to try to win an argument. I'd rather leave the door open. Because if you win an argument, you don't convince anybody, and you're the only one that thinks that you won anyways. So uh, verse 9, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, his answer and what Peter gives them, he actually puts them on trial. And he calls attention to the fact that the miracle was a good deed. What's wrong with that? It's not a crime, what he did. <clears throat> so if you examine me for this, 
healing the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known known unto you, therefore, and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. So he turns the tables on them and puts them on trial. And he says, we performed this good deed by the power of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. And then he tells them Jesus' rejection was even prophesied in the Old Testament. He says, this is the stone which was set at naught, or disregarded or rejected, of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He's saying, Jesus is this stone, and you builders rejected him. And Jesus himself quoted Psalm 118, verse 22, where this comes from. Jesus quoted it too, and as the stone, he quoted it to the builders, saying that you said it not. This stone, which would be like a, a cornerstone, and they were massive, these things, weighing tons and tons of weight. The cornerstone was set at the corner of the foundation, and all of the building rested on this. It had to be set right. It had to be just so, just the right size, and uh, that's why it was the cornerstone. It would be mined out of quarries, local quarries, and brought in. And uh, Jesus said, you have rejected the cornerstone of the temple that God wants to build. And the temple is not the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple is my body, Jesus was saying. And I want to, God wants to build a spiritual house. And so what does that stone mean in doctrine? What is the purpose? What's the doctrinal teaching concerning the stone? Verse 12, the fact that there's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. The cornerstone is, is referring to salvation and the, the uh, fact that salvation is exclusive to Jesus Christ. There is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you reject the cornerstone... There is no no hope. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. You could uh, compare that with other scriptures, but we won't for the sake of time. But there's many others. We're going to look at one this morning in our in our message. But in John chapter three verse eighteen, I'll just read it before we close. It says here um, that God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, verse seventeen, but that the world, the world the world might be saved through him. 